Glad that you are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. We are in James chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. James chapter 2. I know my wife, is uh, she sat in first service, but I just wanted to uh, let you guys know we've been married 44 years on Friday. And so, yeah. Three years old when we got married, and then, um, but uh, it's been absolutely the best. Best friends since 12 and 13 years old, so we go way, way back, actually. But God has blessed us, and uh, got a great, uh, great wife, so... Also, this is the, really the 21st anniversary for the September 11th tragedy, and so we need to be praying for the families of those uh, affected by that. You think about it, those 21 years ago, maybe kids that were you know, two or three years old, now they're adults, they grew up without having a dad or a mom, and so just remember to pray for those families today on a day like today. So, James chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 13 verses today, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> we read, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to look at discrimination, prejudice, partiality this morning. So I've decided to name, title our study, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together. We thank you for your word and this opportunity, Holy Spirit, to hear from you what we need to hear individually as, as each person here in this room. Corporately as a church, we know, Lord, that you have something to say to all of us. So, Lord, we pray that we would have those receptive ears to receive exactly what you want to tell our hearts. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts especially, that they would see their need to come to you in faith and give their lives to you. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you notice, if you came in, we got some new banners up here in the church, and it's kind of a, a retro look. If you, you know, go back to the early days of Calvary, some of the bumper stickers and some of the things they had all had this kind of font, and, and I think some of the, 
you know, younger kids, they look at the, the, this Maranatha, which means Lord come, you know, the Marahu to some of the younger kids. But back in the 70s, it was a popular saying. There was bumper stickers all over it. And, and, uh, um, so we, we kind of designed it to look like a Calvary Chapel might have looked back in the early days if you've been a part of Calvary Chapels for a while. Now what I want to do is I want to show a brief movie a clip, a trailer rather, of a movie that's going to come out in February called The Jesus Revolution. And it's, uh, it's been produced with the, the prayer that there would be one more Jesus movement, if you would, in the 2000s that, that would really go before, come before the Lord returns. And so we're going to show this little uh, video uh, put out uh, trailer. I would pray before the Lord returns one more Jesus revolution would be absolutely uh, amazing. And it's interesting to me to think about this. In the early days of Calvary Chapel uh, in Costa Mesa, there was some discrimination going on uh, when revival was about to take place. So the hippies were coming to church. They were coming in barefoot and they were sticking their big toes in the communion cup holders in the back of the pews. And the, some of the uh, older elders of the church, if you were, they kind of got upset because they're coming in barefoot. So they put up signs in their foyer that said, shoes must be worn in sanctuary at all times. Or Pastor Chuck comes in that Sunday morning and he sees the sign there, knowing that many of these hippies actually didn't own a pair of shoes, tears down the sign, threw it away and confronts the elder on it. And the elder said, well, their bare feet is going to ruin the brand new carpet that we have in the building. And I love Pastor Chuck's response. Then pull up the carpet. <laughs> Wanted them to come in as they were, hear the gospel message. And we know as a result, many lives have changed. Many of those hippies are now pastoring some of the largest churches in America because of the work that was done back in the early 70s. Read another story about a, uh, a poor woman who lived in a poor section of town and only owned one dress to her name. She decided she wanted to join a very popular, large, well-to-do church. 
So she talked to the pastor about it. He suggested that she go home and, and think about it carefully for a week. Well, at the end of the week, uh, she came back. He said, now let's not be too hasty. You go home and you read your Bible for an hour every day this week. Then come back and tell me if you still feel like you want to be part of this church. Although she wasn't happy about this, she agreed to do it. Next week she came back, assuring the pastor she wanted to become a member of that church. In exasperation, he said, well, I have one more suggestion. You pray every day this week and ask the Lord if he wants you to be a part of our fellowship. Well, the pastor didn't see the woman for about six months, but then one day he ran into her and and asked her what she decided to do. She says, well, I, I did what you asked me to do. I went home and I prayed. And while I was praying, the Lord spoke to me and said, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get into it myself for the last 20 years. Let's modernize this maybe a little bit. Let me put it another way. If you knew that within 15 minutes that you're going to have a half-hour meeting with the new king of England, you know, King Charles II, would you I mean, fix your hair? Would you, would you brush your teeth? Would, would you think about what you're going to say? Now, what if you knew that in, in 10 minutes you would meet a homeless man? Would you put out that same type of energy? See, this is what James is getting at here. We're all vulnerable. We're all guilty of treating people differently depending on how we view them outwardly. James here is saying that there was a problem that existed in the church at that time, that of discrimination, that of of prejudice. Now, we know that discrimination, we know that prejudice is a very hot topic in our society today. Again, the events from September uh, uh, 11th, you know, uh, 2001, uh, an attack on our country because of hatred, because of prejudice against our country. Racism is a huge problem that has cost our country millions of dollars. One that has caused much violence in our day, receiving much political and, and, and public attention. Sometimes it's false, sometimes it's true. Maybe you caught a recent uh, situation this past week where uh, 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 the Duke volleyball player said a BYU fan shouted racial slurs at her when she was about, to, about ready to serve. The fan they thought was this one guilty of, they, they, they banned this person uh, from ever attending another BYU sporting event ever again, which they should. But then a few days later, an article came out that said they examined a video of when that supposed slur took place, and the person they banned wasn't saying anything. In fact, he wasn't even paying attention. He was on his phone the whole time. So you just never know. But we do know this. There is a sin of discrimination. There's prejudice. There's racism. It happens all the time. It happens when a person decides uh, how they're going to treat another person based off of the color of their skin, their economic status, or their accent. Back in the early 70s, based upon their, the length of hair or whether they wore shoes or not. But let me say this. This doesn't mean that we all have to have the same likes and dislikes. God has made us all different for a reason. And those differences are fine as long as we don't use those differences to determine how we're going to think, feel, or act towards somebody else. We must show R-E-S-P-E-C-T to everyone. And here in God's Word, James goes right to the truth, right to the core of the problem, without sugarcoating any of it, without cutting any corners. And he paints a clear picture of what we have seen in church history, we've seen in our own experiences, and that is the tendency of us who call ourselves Christians to discriminate, to be given into favoritism. 
And he sets forth reasons why we should reject this type of spirit and clearly set, set forth the attitude that we should have. He challenges us to examine our own hearts and see if perhaps we are harboring maybe a secret prejudice or hatred. Now, before we get too far into this study, I want to point out what this is not talking about. This is not talking about critical race theory, not talking about wokeism, Black Lives Matter. Critical race theory presupposes that everything about American society is thoroughly racist and minority groups will never be equal until American society is entirely reformed. From a political standpoint, critical race theory really is anti-God and closely aligns itself with communism and Marxism. Then you have Black Lives Matter. And of course, black lives do matter and racism is so wrong. What kind of Christian is not against racism? But if you go to their website, and I've shared this before, it's not about black lives mattering. It's about the LGBTQ lifestyle in America. And not only being accepted, but if you call it sin, then you are labeled a racist. And then obviously we have wokeism. It's just a fairly modern term that has come to mean conscience of injustice in society. A woke person is especially attentive to racial discrimination and the issues surrounding it. Sounds fine, except the problem is all of these so-called moves for justice and equality just masquerading as racism in order to promote its true agenda, which is the push and the acceptance of sexual immorality of LGBTQ lifestyle in our nation. And if you call it out for what it is, then you are painted as a racist, divisive, prejudiced, and full of hate speech and homophobic. Listen, these so-called movements don't apply to what James is talking about here because they're promoting sin, rebellion against God's word. And that all basically comes from the indoctrination out of the world, the media, the news channels that we see about every single day that that are set to control and shape the minds of adults and children alike. We've all seen their use of propaganda so that they can form the opinions of the masses. We no longer have truth in the, in the media today. You have a slant of view that's designed to create a mindset and that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. And you know, God told Isaiah it's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, What are those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Listen, treating people badly because they are in sin is wrong. It's always wrong. It's wrong all the time. It's discrimination and it's wrong. After all, while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. But that's different than accepting someone's sinful lifestyle and saying something is okay when it is in direct conflict to the Word of God. So we can accept the people, treat them with respect, but not the sin. We all know the saying, love the sinner but hate the sin. That's why we must always look to God's Word when it comes to the truth on every subject. And that's what we're doing this morning as we look at James. He continues to teach us that it's not good enough just to receive the truth of God's Word. We need to act upon it. We must apply it, and that goes for respect and not showing partiality. Because if we fail to welcome the Word with humility, if we fail to welcome the Word with the purpose of applying it to our lives personally, then what happens is we've developed this case of spiritual snobbery, you know, of, of partiality. I'm so much better than everyone else. It's a sin of spiritual pride, prejudice, discrimination, and really, as you will just see, it's just plain stupidity. If you're taking notes, we're going to point out three things this morning. Number one, our actions will reveal our attitudes. Number two, our conduct will reveal our convictions. And number three, 
Our walk will reveal our talk. Number one, our actions will reveal our attitudes. Now, if I were to ask you to write on the bulletin, on the little note section on the back, examples of discrimination, I would guess that that many of you would write out two or three things that you're not involved in, but, but what discrimination looks like. Total bypassing the fact that real discrimination or prejudice, spiritual snobbery, takes on many different forms. I mean, you could be one that has uh, economic discrimination. If you value money, you begin to look at people through that value system. And you label them either well-to-do or poor. To the rich person, the first thing you wonder is, well, how much money do they make? How much money do they have? How can I get to know them? But then to someone who is poor, you say, I don't know if I want to get too close to them because this may be a problem. They may be asking too much of me. See, if you value money, that's the way you're going to look at people. You're going to look at someone, how they can, you know, help you out financially or economically. So that's discrimination. But discrimination also comes if we value appearance. Discrimination can exist. You know, we label someone attractive or unattractive. I mean, and the first thing you, you, know, you ask about a person when you want to know what they look like is what, you, know, you want to know anything about them. Well, what do they look like? Single people will often do that. I have a friend I want you to meet. Well, what do they look like? Which really isn't a fair question because we know beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But, you know, you often say, but they have a great personality. Appearance, discrimination. Sadly, there's also discrimination within the church when a woman and the church gets a divorce. There are those who label her a, a divorced woman and, and, and they blind themselves to the reality of her pain, to her gifts, to her needs. There's discrimination when people come along who are physically disabled. And the problem with that is we label them disabled and we patronize them and treat them as if they, they have nothing to offer. But in so doing, we blind ourselves to the treasures and the gifts that they do have to offer us. See, discrimination comes in many different forms. And often our actions really reveal our inner attitudes. That's why James begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 by saying, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. I love that James uses the full title of our Lord here because he wants us to remember Jesus is no longer the despised, rejected carpenter from a dead-end town in Galilee called Nazareth. No, he's now the, the risen and ascended and, ex, ex, ascended and exalted Lord and has authority over all of heaven and all of earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, when you compare yourself with that title, I say we all look pretty shabby. We're all in tattered clothes. We, we have nothing to boast in. Apart from God clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are, as the Bible says, as filthy rags. But because of what Jesus did upon the cross, the dying for our sins, rising again from the dead, as we put our faith and trust in Him, God now looks at us as He looks at His Son. And He just sees His righteousness in our lives. Doesn't matter, rich or poor, able or disabled, doesn't matter the color of your skin. When God looks at us as believers, He sees His Son. See, that in and of itself proves that faith in Jesus Christ and prejudices are are incompatible. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now we know as James penned these words to his Jewish fellow Jewish believers, uh, Jewish readers, the subject would have been very familiar to them because of all the warnings given in the Old Testament about partiality. Let me give you a few verses to jot down or to remember that you can look up later. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. How about Deuteronomy 117? You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Deuteronomy 16:19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. Couple more, Proverbs twenty four twenty three. These things also belong to the wise. It's not good to show partiality in judgment. Proverbs twenty eight twenty one. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. You get the point. Partiality is mentioned several times in the New Testament as well, but most of them refer to how God is not partial when it comes to dealing with us. Over in Acts chapter ten verse thirty four, Peter says, opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Colossians 3.25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. So over and over again, we see God's view of this. And that's why James now gives us to us either an example or an actual true-to-life experience that happened in a church service. Look at verses 2 through 4. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, think about this whole scene here that James is addressing. How could a group of Christians do such a thing like this? And really the language in these first couple of verses here indicate that this could have actually happened in the early church. Maybe James even witnessed this event. But even if this was hypothetical, we know that church history has documented that this sin repeats itself in the church. So James is saying if you're showing favoritism, if you're showing partiality, you become judges and evil with evil thoughts. Better translation of that would be judges with vicious intentions. Not just thoughts, but intentions to do something about those thoughts. James is saying those who discriminate are possessed of wicked intentions. They place more value on the soul of the rich man and they disregard the poor, clearly displaying the cheapening of his soul. Perhaps they're thinking, wow, man, what a a bundle this rich man could donate to the church. But this poor man, I don't know, it's going to take years to get him up to speed if it could be done at all. Those are evil thoughts. James detests such thinking. In fact, he sees this as a matter of partiality, as a test of real faith. One man put it this way, favoritism is an indication of a heart that at best is in need of spiritual help and at worst is a heart without grace. We'll see that in verse 9, James clearly says prejudice is sin. Not a social problem, not just a matter of how you were raised, not a cultural problem, it's, it's sin. Now, what makes it worse is that the person who practices this sin also displays what what I might call spiritual stupidity. 
Yeah, we've been talking about spiritual growth and maturity. And James is saying, no, there's some spiritual stupidity going on here as well. So how does God's word deal with this stupidity, with this sin? He does it by setting the record straight. That brings us to point number two. Our conduct will reveal our convictions. Look at verses five and six. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. James is saying, while you're showing honor to the rich, you're dishonoring the poor. Your, your conduct is revealing your conviction. Really, your, your conduct is revealing your spiritual stupidity. I shouldn't say stupidity. Maybe a better word would be ignorance. But one way that partiality reveals spiritual ignorance is that it ignores the reality of what God is doing and what God has done in the world. Because if you want to know where God hangs out, you'll often find him hanging out with the poor, with the outcasts, with the discriminated against, those who the world despises. God does his greatest work among these people. He uses their poverty to give them a rich faith, a faith that a lot of what what you would call a a well-to-do person may never know. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having wealth and being a wise steward over all that God has given to you. Nothing wrong with having money as long as money doesn't have you. There's nothing wrong with being a part of a specific ethnic class. But the other side of that coin is also just because you're poor doesn't make you a saint, doesn't make you spiritual. But the fact remains, God seems to do his best work among the poor and among the despised. And I think the reason behind that is because a poor person doesn't have much materially, so it's easy for them to see and understand how spiritually bankrupt we truly are. And how much we really need to depend upon Jesus Christ. Whereas often for the rich are very self-sufficient and it's harder for them to sense their spiritual poverty and need for God. One man has given this illustration about what money can't buy. It goes like this. Money can buy a bed but not sleep. Books but not brains. Food but not an appetite. A house but not a home. Medicine but not health. Pleasures but not peace. Luxuries but not culture, amusement but not joy, a cross but not a savior, a church building but not heaven. Now we know that, that God delights in reversing the world's ideas of things. Paul puts it so clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 when he writes, For you see your calling, brethren, that many wise according to the flesh, not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now because of what we looked at, talked about, we don't want to do reverse discrimination. You know, all those that are well off financially, you have to sit on the floor in the back and everybody else before they get in the front. No, the bottom line is this God's priority is not what the person looks like on the outside, how big or how little their, their bank account is. God's priority is what's going on on the inside. And if there's a sin of discrimination, the sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism, uh, God wants us to deal with it. Next, James adds something that would make these believers Think even a little more about this. Look at verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. 
Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? Boy, isn't that a clear description of the way the world is working today? You know, the world's golden rule is he who has the gold gets the rule. I mean, you think about it, isn't that the very affluent, the very wealthy, the very educated, that type of people are the most resistant to the gospel message. In fact, Jesus himself said the very same thing. In the story of the rich young rulers, he came to the Lord and asked the Lord, what must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? Let me read to you Jesus' response. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's hard because they're trusting in those riches. They're trusting in what they have. So they really see no need to trust in Christ. But notice in Mark that Jesus said, it says there, then Jesus looking at him, Loved him. Again, we don't want to do reverse discrimination. Jesus loved this rich young ruler. And I think in the same way, we need to pray for those with riches that God would open up their hearts to the gospel. I think it's really easy, and I've done this before, to slam, you know, put down men like Bill Gates, George Soros, Jeff Bezos, all those that are wealthy and hold very liberal, anti-biblical views, but God does love these men and Jesus died for them and we need to pray for that their hearts would be open to receive Him as Lord and Savior. But with that said, it's usually the rich, the powerful, who often spend the millions of dollars to get their laws passed that go directly, that go directly against Christian values, that go directly against the Christian faith. They spend millions of dollars to get their candidate elected, the ones that stand for everything against God and His Word. But understand, we know that the people are not the real enemy. It's the devil behind them, and he uses these people to accomplish his agenda. And his servants are the ones that, that feel superior to others. They have the prejudice, the discrimination, and favoritism. And, he, and Satan uses it as a weapon, and he's done so quite well over the years. So what's the solution? Well, if we really want to do what God has called us to do, then point number three, our walk will reveal our talk. Our walk must match our talk. That's what James is saying. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James, James rather goes all the way back to the Old Testament to one of God's laws. The royal law is to love others as you love yourself. It's a royal law because it was given to us by the king. I read a, an article that said a lady tried to take her King Charles Cavalier puppy into a supermarket and was turned away. So the newly appointed King Charles II passed the law stating that the King Charles Cavalier Spaniels, named after him, should be allowed access anywhere in the land, including the House of Parliament. <laughs> Story was fake, but <laughs> many people who love their King Charles Cavalier think it should be the new royal king law. Listen, we have a royal law because it was given to us by our king. And what's the law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you, that law is posted throughout the whole 
Bible. It's not the whole Word of God. Leviticus 19.18, the Lord says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus reaffirmed it to his disciples in John 13.34. New commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see, this law rules all the other laws. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to your neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we say we love people, then our walk must match our talk. Our walk must prove what we say is true. And we're going to get into that next week when we look about faith versus works, a very controversial passage. But you see, Christian love does not leave the person where he finds them. Love should help the poor man do better. Love should help the rich man make better use of his God-given resources. Love always builds up, whereas hate always tears down. I read about a, a story about a wealthy old man who was very enthusiastic about his lovely young bride, but sometimes wondered whether she might have just married him for his money or not. So he asked her, if I lost all my money, would you still love me? She replied, of course I would still love you. Don't be silly, but I would miss you. (laughs) We need the royal law of love because of our sinful lack of love. If people live by the royal law of love, then they wouldn't steal from others because they wouldn't want to be stolen from they wouldn't hurt others because they wouldn't want to be hurt by others. This royal law commands us to love God with everything that is in us. Yet the Bible says that we can't love God unless we first love one another. When that royal law is lived out, marvelous things happen horizontally and vertically. Ernest Gordon, in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, tells of the miraculous transformation that took place among the Allied prisoners in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943. He writes this, in 1942, the camp was a sea of mud and filth, the scene of grueling labor and brutal treatment by Japanese guards. There was hardly any food, and the law that pervaded the whole camp was the law of the jungle, every man for himself. Twelve months later, the ground of the camp was cleared and clean, the bamboo bed flats had been debugged, green bows had been used to rebuild the huts, and on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were at worship. What had happened? During the year, a prisoner had shared his last crumb of food with another man who was also in desperate need. Then he died. Among his belongings, they found a Bible. Some who witnessed his ultimate act of love wondered, could the Bible be the secret of willingness to give sacrificially to others? One by one, the prisoners began to read it. Soon the Spirit of God began to grip their hearts and change their lives. And in a period of less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and moral revolution within the camp. Folks, the royal law of love lived out works just like that. But the opposite is true as well. Look at verse 9. James says, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Showing favoritism to the elite and privilege is a flagrant violation of loving your neighbor, those in need, as yourself. And, And... Such sin is no small thing. James makes it very clear when he says, if you show partiality, you commit sin. Period. James views such an action as deliberate and ugly. It's not just an excusable lack of, uh, of courtesy. No, God's word calls it for what it is, sin. But it's so easy to not give that 
you know, convicting a title to it. Yet we won't get anywhere in our growth towards Christ's likeness until we label it correctly. A person who shows prejudice against those of different race is a racist, and racism is sin. A person who shows any kind of prejudice or discrimination, it is sin. And then James underlines the seriousness of this sin by making the comparison. Look at verses 10 and 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For you said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We know the Old Testament, you know, murder and adultery were both punishable by death. They were serious capital offenses. So what does God think of prejudice and discrimination? He puts it in the same category as murder and adultery. In other words, don't call partiality or or prejudice a minor sin, a lack of courtesy. Don't say, well, just the way I was raised, I may be a little prejudiced, but having killed anybody, well, you know, in God's eyes, it's just as bad of a sin as if you did. You committed adultery or murder. God says so. See, I believe that the reason that the church has not been able to solve the problem of prejudice is we've not treated it for what it is, sin. Just like we treat every other sin. We need to quit excusing it, quit blaming it on the way we were raised or what happened in the past. Call it like it is and get it out of our hearts, get it out of our lives. Now, I am glad that James ends this sermon on a good note. He says our walk will reveal our talk in a good way. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is great. When we show mercy to others, when we act in love towards others, regardless of race, class, culture, God turns that mercy into credit into our eternal bank accounts. See, one of the tests of the reality of our faith is how we treat other people. Can we pass that test? Because one day we, are, we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now James is not talking about believers being rejected at some future judgment. When we as Christians stand before God, our salvation will not be in question. We're signed, sealed, and delivered. But we still must answer for the works that we have done in the flesh, whether good or bad. We're going to be evaluated for those works. And based off of that are the rewards we're going to receive in heaven. So here's where mercy comes in. When we stand before that seat, Jesus will play back that video of our lives, so to speak. But this video is not going to just show our outward actions. It's going to show our inward hearts. If you've shown mercy to those who in the world's eyes is a nobody, made them feel like a somebody, that counts towards mercy to your account. Every time you treat someone with the royal law of love, no matter what they look like, it goes to your account. And I don't know about you, but when I get into heaven... I want all the rewards I can get so I can give them all back to the Lord and say, thank you for what you've done for me. So what's the solution to prejudice? What's the solution to partiality, favoritism, and discrimination? It begins with calling it like it is sin, recognizing it's sin, confess it as sin, ask God forgiveness for that sin, turning from that sin. Then commit your life to look for opportunities to show mercy to those that are different than you. Look for those opportunities to obey the royal law of love. There's a a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And he tells of an experience that caused a major change in his attitude towards other people. And he writes this. 
I remember one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly. Some were reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm and peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was real difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive that he would let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, take no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated as well. So finally, with what I thought was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. We blush for Stephen Covey. And for all those times, we ourselves made those insensitive judgments. The bottom line, folks, is our belief should control our behavior. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God is gracious, and His Word is true, and that one day He will judge us, then our actions will reveal our attitudes. Our conduct will reveal our convictions, and our walk will reveal our talk. We'll be practicing what we say we believe. And before we show partiality to someone, before we show prejudice towards someone who's not like you, we need to practice what we say we believe. If we're walking in Christ's footsteps towards the goal of perfection, following His example all along the way, the sin of prejudice, the sin of partiality, of partiality will not be a problem in our lives. How do we see people the Lord brings into our path? Those in need. Do we have the Lord's eyes and hearts for them? Let's bring this a little closer to home and some issues that we have to deal with today in our time. How do you treat someone who is caught up in a homosexual lifestyle that comes into the church? As someone to avoid or someone who needs to hear the love of Jesus? You know, the hippies of the 60s and 70s, they were messed up. They were into sin. They were into drugs, looking for hope. And Pastor Chuck said, come on in. God has something to say to you. Can we do the same? Do we treat them with R-E-S-P-E-C-T, with respect? Better yet, do we have the Lord's eyes? Do we have the Lord's heart for them? As we close, I do want us to think, think about the way Jesus treated people because the way Jesus ministered to the people of his time is the standard, is the bar that, that, that God wants for us on our Christian road to maturity. If we want to grow in our relationship with the Lord, we need to see how He handled the same situations that we face today. When we look at how Jesus dealt with people that He encountered on earth, in fact, some jump out at us. Jesus didn't relate to people based on how they looked or spoke or how much money they had. In fact, just the opposite with Jesus. He related to the poor and the outcasts of society. Remember the story of the poor widow and the offering that she made? Widows at that time, they were at the bottom rung of the social ladder. Yet Jesus said that this woman gave a better offering than all these other rich people did because she gave all that she had. Jesus spoke highly of not what she gave in the offering plate, but what the attitude of her heart was. 
Then there was a Samaritan woman at the well. The half-breed, the one who had five husbands and the one she was living with wasn't her husband at the time either. So a half-breed and a moral person, a two-time loser in the eyes of the Jews, based on that criteria, Jesus should have stayed far away from that woman. But Jesus didn't. Jesus was more concerned about the individual than what people thought on the outside. And as a result, that Samaritan woman, that prostitute became one of the leading evangelists in the New Testament, leading a whole city full of men to the Savior. See, Jesus looked back, looked past her problems and dealt with her as a person who was worth his time. In fact, even when we look at Jesus' upbringing, he was not from the upper class economically or socially. Jesus would be considered a blue-collar person today, a poor carpenter, as they said, from a nowhere town called Nazareth where they said nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was where he grew up. Jesus didn't have a home, had no social status. In fact, Isaiah says of Jesus in Isaiah 53, 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Heads didn't turn when Jesus walked into the room. Jesus looked quite ordinary. Look at it this way. Jesus lived on the earth, the earth that he created, but made no claims of wealth or what he would call worthy, uh, worldly greatness. If, if someone were to judge Jesus by the world standards of wealth and status and appearance, they'd be sadly off, off the mark. Yet, all the time he was and still is a son of God. I think that's why James started this section out by saying, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Jesus is no longer the despised, rejected carpenter from a dead in town in Galilee. He's now the risen, ascended, exalted Lord and has authority over heaven and earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I want to close with this. Paul's words found in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 9. He writes, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. As we pray, Lord, help us to do the same, to have that same mind. Even though we've been born again into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. We have a very, very wealthy king. And all sorts of benefits that flow from that, being a part of the king's family. Let's not look down on other people. But remember where we all came from and humble ourselves and be obedient to the word of God. To fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you've never given your life to the Lord. And so as we close, I want to give that opportunity before we close to say how much God loves you and He cares for you. He sent to send Jesus to die on the cross for every sin you've ever committed. And all you need to do is confess to Him that you're a sinner. Apologize. Repent of that sin with the, with the heart desire to turn from it. And you can be born again this morning. God will take away that sin. He'll fill that emptiness in your heart. He loves you so much. doesn't matter what you've committed. doesn't matter what you've done. You can find grace and forgiveness and mercy if you come to Jesus Christ this morning. 
if that's your desire, as soon as service is over, please come up and talk to me or one of the pastors. would love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that sometimes there's sections in your word that, Lord, we don't like to hear. Sometimes it really hits us hard. And, and I know for me, Lord, uh, this is one of those places. Lord, help me to have your eyes. Help me to have your heart for the people that are around us. Lord, to have that love for them. No matter what uh, economic class they come from, ethnicity they are, uh, anything about them, Lord. No matter what sin they're involved in, help me to show the love that you have for them as much as you showed to the sinners when you were on this earth. Show them the grace that you have and the forgiveness if they just come to you and find that, that hope. Lord, not that we accept sin, not that we, we compromise, call it for what it is, sin, but it takes many, many forms, many shapes. So, Lord, if there is a sin of, of uh, uh, just discrimination, partiality, racism, Lord, help us to turn from it this morning. Just turn to you and treat people with love and respect the same way you treat us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and do one last song together.